If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel. We'll look at the end of chapter 10. So we only are taking two weeks to go through John 10. I think we're on a roll. Um, verses 22 through 42, they're printed in the bulletin there, and uh, there are some Bibles available on the table in the back if you need one. Uh, we talk about Jesus a lot here. Um, kind of joking about that with uh, some friends just before worship was starting. Uh, um, we don't talk about him because we have to, because that's the right thing to do, or because somebody with good theology, that's what you do, is talk about Jesus a lot. Uh, we do that because uh, we want to, because he's, he's really interesting. I don't know if you've uh, gotten to know him much, but he's, he's a pretty interesting character. And uh, one of the things that I find really interesting about him, there are a lot of things uh, that we should find interesting about Jesus, is that he remains calm and gracious in very difficult uh, circumstances, very, very hard situations to be in. He remains calm and not just calm, but gracious, really other-oriented, really loving, uh, like when he's hanging on the cross and he prays for the forgiveness of the people who put him there and makes arrangements for his mother to be taken care of by, by John, by one of his disciples. That's, that's not just calm in the face of very difficult, trying circumstances. That's um, incredibly gracious. Or like here, in our passage that we're going to look at in just a minute, uh, when he's surrounded by an angry mob in a pretty threatening situation and is not only able not to panic and just to keep his wits about him, but, uh, which would be impressive in itself, but, but really he continues to proclaim good news to people who are about to attack him. He's proclaiming good news. He takes care of these people, even though they've surrounded him and are angry and ready to, to kill him. And this is some of his best material here in, in John 10, right here. Uh, it's some of his most substantial teaching, and it comes at a point when I would be nervously looking for a way out of that situation. Uh, when we find ourselves um, getting ready to fight, he continues to love and to reveal God to us for our good. Um, so we really should listen to someone like that. He's something else, especially when he's trying to um, give us the assurance of our salvation, which is what he's doing this morning. So well, let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you've sent your son into the world to be our savior, to be everything we need for a relationship with you. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Christ now as we consider your word, as we consider his word. We pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to have the response of faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, 
It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So now we're looking at a passage. It's an account of an event that took place a couple months after what we just read about last week in the beginning of John 10, after the previous Feast of Tabernacles. It's December. What Feast of the Jews happens in December? It's Hanukkah, right? It's the Feast of Dedication. Uh, it's, it was a feast. They celebrated the reconsecration of the temple. So what happened uh, almost 200 years before this uh, was that um, the Seleucid uh, king or emperor, I don't know, um, uh, he had conquered and oppressed these people and offered, uh, he, he set up a, a, a pagan altar in the temple and offered... Um, unclean offerings to a false god in their temple, and so he, he had desecrated the temple, and uh, what they had done was had a revolt. It was actually successful. They kicked them out and re-consecrated the temple. They fixed everything, got it purified, and now had, again, uh, for themselves a place where they could worship um, according to their laws. So it was a celebration of that uh, that series of events, that especially the reconsecration of the temple that happened in 165 B.C., and that's the time of year that it is. Jesus is walking around outside the temple proper. Uh, he's among the columns of Solomon. There's probably some significance there, but we're just not going to pause to take time to talk about it. The Jews gathered around him. They'd had several confrontations with Jesus before. They gathered around him. They, they encircled him. They surrounded him. And they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us. Be straight up with us. Um, so, so they encircled him, maybe so that he couldn't escape this time, because he, he had the habit of doing that when they encircled him, ready to kill him. <laughs> they, he got away. So they're around him. Uh, they're demanding an answer according to their expectations for the Messiah. They're demanding an answer. We, we picture that the Messiah is going to be like this. Are you that guy? And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. That's what's really going on here. I told you, and you don't believe. He's not just being cagey, not wanting to answer their question. He's not just being modest. Well, I, you know, I wouldn't say that about myself. Others say that about me all the time, but I don't say that about myself, you know. Um, He's not being cagey. He's not being modest. He's making a point about why they can't hear what he's been saying to them, why they can't accept his revelation. He's made it clear. Uh, They have enough information, so to speak. They have enough information 
but they don't accept it. They don't accept what they've heard from him. So Jesus answered them, I I told you, and you don't believe. You, You realize that's what's happening here in our relationship. I've told you the truth, and you're not responding the right way. You don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. So it's basic logic. It's common sense that would see this. Jesus came into the world saying, I'm doing my Father's works. And so far in John's gospel, he's miraculously turned 150 gallons of water into incredible wine for the community in Cana, in this small town in northern Israel, to celebrate love. is for a wedding feast, to have a joyful time. <clears throat> he healed a boy at the brink of death in a village that he was not in just by speaking a word. He healed remotely. Um, he healed a man who'd been an invalid for 38 years, some form of paralysis or handicap. He fed an army of people, thousands and thousands of people, uh, to full and overflowing, just on five loaves of bread and two fishes. Um, He walked on the water during a storm, and most recently healed a man who had been born blind, which is unprecedented in the history of the world. One does not just do these things, right? He's doing things that can't be done. And they're good things. They're good things, and they're his father's work, he says. And a child can put two and two together here. So Jesus uses pretty strong language about why they don't believe. He's trying to get through to them. There's a disconnect here. You're resisting me. You're not believing me. You see what I've done. You hear what I've said doing more and saying more won't help at this point. You, you haven't placed your trust in me because you're not one of my sheep, because you're not one of my people. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And so that's echoes of what we heard last week at the beginning of John 10, this, this mutual recognition that exists between Jesus and his people, Jesus and believers, Jesus and the church his sheep, his flock, mutual recognition, a special kind of relationship that exists there. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So that last verse, verse 30, that's some pretty serious stuff. Uh, Theologians and councils have debated these words for 2,000 years and counting. Um, Jesus is looking, what is he doing in this passage? He's looking to give us the assurance of our salvation. You want to know that you have a real relationship with God. You want to know what it means to be a believer, to be a follower of God, to to have salvation, to be saved, to know Jesus. and be in a relationship. He's, he's talking about his sheep. He's talking about those who belong to him and how nothing can prevent him from giving them eternal life. Nothing can stop him from doing that. And uh, implicitly and in, in the context, he, he is talking to those who don't belong to him. And uh, implicitly, they, they should not be very assured about the reality of their relationship to God. 
If you're not responding this way to Jesus, if you're not responding with faith to Jesus Christ, then maybe you shouldn't be assured that, that you're saved, that you have a relationship with God. That's what he's saying. But God wants his people, which is, I think, the main point of this passage, he wants his people to be assured that we are in good hands, that he saves us, and he wants us to know that he saves us. He wants us to know and, and have assurance about the fact that he is the one with power to save. And so when Jesus gives us this assurance, very strange thing, hard for us to process, when Jesus is giving us the assurance of our salvation, he talks about his relationship with the Father. He talks about his unity with the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. So of supreme importance, of supreme importance for the assurance of our salvation, for you finding real confidence in your relationship to God, even in your day-to-day life, of supreme importance is the truth, it's the reality that Jesus is God and Jesus reveals the life of God, Jesus reveals the Trinity to us. That is of supreme importance here, at least the way Jesus is talking about it. So like the Nicene Creed says that we're going to recite in a few minutes, Jesus, the Son of God, is of one substance with the Father. We're not talking about two gods, three gods, multiple gods. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the Father and the Son being one. There's one God, one substance. The Son is of one substance with the Father. He's distinct from the Father. He's a different way of being a person than the Father is, but he's one with the Father so that there's only one God. It's really hard for us to hold this together. It's really hard. Uh, But it's imperative for the assurance of our salvation. Historically, just brief history lesson of heresies that have plagued the church for thousands of years, followers of a guy named Arius, so Arians, taught that Jesus was uh, so distinct from the Father that he really was, was a different substance. Of, uh, from God. He's, he was sort of created by God, and therefore he was not the same as God. He was not God, right? We're talking about two different beings when you're talking about Jesus and God, God the Father, right? So that's the Arians. On the other hand, followers of a fellow named Sibelius, uh, Sibelians taught that the Father and the Son were so much one that, in fact, they were the same. They were one and the same person, that there's really no distinction between the Father and the Son. <clears throat> and Augustine, uh, one of the early church fathers that um, uh, is he's just really great, great theologian, when, when he looks at this passage and he hears Jesus saying, I and the Father are one, he says, well, not different in nature because one, they're one. And not one person because are, right? I and the Father are So there's distinction, one, unity, unity of substance. So Jesus is God, and he's one with the Father, but he's not one and the same as the Father. He's he's one with the Father. He is one God. The Hebrews, uh, this was very important to them that we're only talking about one God. It's very important to us that there is only one true God, because it says so in the Scriptures. Throughout the Scriptures, uh, one of the the things that uh, the ancient Hebrews recited daily was the Shema, and it's Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But that language, we're talking about one God, that language 
actually is uh, reminiscent of the language used about Adam and Eve when they became one flesh. Two persons, one, one flesh. And so there's some similarity of language used there, even in uh, the ancient Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, there's a union of persons. This is all going somewhere. I know you're just like, your eyes are glazing over. It's super important, trust me. (laughs) There's a union of persons in the Trinity. This is why it's important. Because the God we're talking about, the God who's the source of all reality, the God uh, that you're hopefully wanting to have a relationship with, the God that it, that's what salvation is, to have a relationship with this God, this God, he is the living God. He's the living God. God is life itself because God is persons in communion. That's what real life is. According to the scriptures, real life is blessed communion, Father and Son, communing with each other in the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the God we're talking about, the triune God. He's the living God, and that's the eternal life that Jesus gives, is being brought into those relationships, even the relationships of the Trinity. That's what eternal life is that Jesus gives, and no one can take it away. We're brought into the life of God. We're, we're brought into the relationship that the Father has with the Son. Right? Jesus, who is the Son of God, he grants us <clears throat> freely as a gift. He grants us his own place in the divine relationship with God, right? <clears throat> which he can do because he's God himself, and he's God in the flesh. He's our Lord, and he's our representative as a human being. So the Jews, um, when he said this, they picked up stones again, it says, to stone him. I think there must have been some specially designated corner of the temple for stacking all the stones that they kept picking up to kill Jesus with <laughs> over and over again. <clears throat> um, seriously, though, they, I mean, they've got him surrounded, rocks at the ready, probably fairly good-sized rocks. And so it's a very serious moment, and you see the calm courage of Jesus as he continues to bear good witness uh, to the truth of the gospel that he came to proclaim. Jesus answered them, verse 32, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So he isn't stupid. He knows why they want to stone him. He knows what it is that he keeps saying that makes him angry. And... Um, Plus, he really knows. I mean, he's, he's God. He knows what's going on inside the hearts of people. He's calling them to account. He's engaging with them. He could just call down lightning from heaven to obliterate them instantly for picking up. For, how, do you, how dare you pick up rocks to use against me? But he's engaging with them. He's asking them a question to call them to account, to call them to self-awareness. He wants them to become aware of what it is they're doing and why. And confess their sins. <clears throat> so the Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you. Oh, that would be ridiculous, right? <clears throat> but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. So just a, a little side note. They are right to infer from his words that he is God. He's been claiming that in so many ways. And he doesn't stop them and say, No, no, wait, you got me all wrong. I wasn't claiming divinity, if that will get me out of this stoning process. Um, No, he doesn't do that. His claim to divinity is always what really sets them off and makes them angry enough to murder him. 
well, not murder, right? Not murder him. They're too good for that. It's biblically justified execution, right? They're upholding God's justice. They're concerned with God's name. They're just keeping God's law, executing capital punishment for blasphemy, right? Isn't that their motive? Honestly, I think their dealings with Jesus through the whole gospel uh, really call into question the purity of their motives at this point. They're just like any other religious sinners. Religious sinners, that's not mutually exclusive, right? They're just like any other religious sinners. They're pretending to be good out of a corrupt heart. They're sinners, which means they actually hate God, even if they won't admit it. Actually, I think, I think they're just jealous of Jesus. That's a pretty strange thing to say. <clears throat> Nobody's going to say out loud that they're murderously jealous of Jesus. Why do you want to stone me again? I'm just so angry. I'm just so jealous. That's <laughs> not what anybody's going to say, but that's what's going on. And Jesus has taught that already in, uh, in a parable that we find in Matthew and Mark and Luke, the other Gospels. He tells the parable of the wicked tenants. Parable of the wicked tenants. So Luke 20 has a, one of the versions of this. <clears throat> he says, this is Jesus teaching this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and he let it out. He rented it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. They also beat and treated him shamefully. And sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. So these are, Jesus is talking about the way that his people have treated the prophets before Jesus came. They rejected God's word from them. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So that's what's going on here. They're ready to stone Jesus because they're jealous, because they wanted what was his. They wanted what belonged to him. Because like any other sinners, they demanded the right to be gods themselves. That's what we've done. I need to be God for myself, and that means I need to kill you if you're God. They couldn't stand the idea that he actually was God. I mean, the great irony in their reply to him here is, hey, we're going to kill you because you, being a man, make yourself God. Oh, that's what every sinner does, makes himself God. That's what all of us have done, taking life into our own hands. They're just outraged that it's actually, it might actually be true of this, this one this Jesus. How come you think you can get away with that claim? Come on, let's kill him so that what's his may be ours. Like any other sinners, they grabbed to take by wrongful force what God really had planned to give them all along by his grace. Like any other sinners, they they could not believe that God would freely Treat them very well, raise them, exalt them, 
glorify them. And that's been the problem since the garden, since Genesis 3. We came to believe that God didn't want us to become like him. God was withholding from us what belonged to him. And that if we want that glory, that that divine glory for ourselves, we're going to have to take it. We need to take it for ourselves, even violently, even overthrowing his rule in our lives. But really, his plan since before the beginning, before the beginning of time, has been precisely to make us like him, to bring us into the eternal relationship to glorify us with his own divine glory in the everlasting triune life. That's been his goal. That's what we see in Jesus Christ. When Jesus answers these people who are ready to kill him, he deftly addresses both this matter of God's uh, highly exalting his people, yet they have a hard time believing that, that he would do such a thing, and, and then also the matter of his own unique divinity. He's addressing both those things. He says in verse 34, and he quotes from Psalm 82, which Berta read in our Old Testament reading, Jesus answered them, isn't it written in your law? So it's something you should believe. I said you are gods. I said you are gods. That's no fluke. That's no slip of the tongue. That's not just dramatic embellishment in writing. This is the very word of God. God himself has ascribed the highest greatness. I mean, we're talking about gods with a lowercase g. Don't worry about that. God himself has said, you are gods to his people. You're all gods to his people. The the highest glory being ascribed to them, apart from their deserving it at all, that's what he calls them. That's what he names them. The manuscript evidence is a little bit debated. If you go back to verse 29, uh, which we read a few minutes ago, it probably, it's translated, um, my father is greater than all. It probably should be translated, what my father has given me is greater than all. Um, and so in the context here, that he's talking about his people. What my father has given me, these sheep, this flock, these people, the church, humanity that's restored in God's image, those who are brought into the divine relationship, people like us, the church is the greatest reality of all creation. There's nothing more important. There's nothing more, more glorious or dignified. And that, as, as, uh, as you look at it throughout the scriptures and you look at ancient doctrines, the history of the church, that's what's called theosis or deification. Deification. He makes us gods. Again, lowercase g, don't get hung up on the language until you understand what's meant by it. God makes us gods. It doesn't mean we become uncreated, supercosmic deities that have being in and of ourselves and don't need God anymore because we're just like him in every way, substantially. It means that we're brought into the closest possible relationship to him. No closer relationship is possible than the relationship between the Father and the Son. And it says we participate in his very nature. That's what Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1. We participate. We've been made participants and partakers of the divine nature, and, uh, and, and we're privileged to live on his behalf, to be his representatives in the world, to exercise his own divine authority over everything that belongs to him. In Psalm 82, he's talking about his people, and he calls them gods as they're meant to judge alongside him in righteousness. And Paul says, we'll, we'll judge even the angels. 
Can you imagine a higher position than that? 1 Corinthians 6. Of course, his people, especially, I mean, you see it right there in Psalm 82, his people failed to judge rightly. We sin all day long. We don't do it right. We don't do this humanity thing right. We're not living in relationship with God the way we're supposed to. So he spoke to them. He sent his word to them to correct them and to redeem them. So Jesus reminds them that, in fact, they have been highly esteemed by God. And he argues, he gives this argument from the lesser to the greater. He says, if they were called gods, you know, if if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world that you're blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? If, If you all are gods, what is Jesus? The one that God sent into the world. Uh, Another little side note here. Almost parenthetical statement when he says, uh, Scripture cannot be broken. I mean, he's basing this whole argument on one word that's found in the Old Testament, right? God's, that word. It's it's a very important uh, argument that he's making. And implicit in this argument is the idea that um, that every word of Scripture is pure and right and good, cannot be broken, it's, it's without error, it has power, it has authority, every single word down to the word, right? So the doctrine of inerrancy is important to us. We believe that the scriptures cannot be broken, that they are right in what they're communicating to us, <clears throat> right and true, not wrong in any way, and it's a view his enemies shared. It's a view that, that the, the Pharisees, the Jewish, the religious leaders of his day, they shared that view with him. So just, just be thinking about this. It's possible to believe in inerrancy and yet oppose Jesus Christ. So think about that. <clears throat> more to the point, though, more to Jesus' point, though, is that if, if God called them gods, to whom the word of God came, then what do you call the one who is the word of God himself? the one who was sent into the world for our salvation, Jesus, he's the preexistent one. He dwelt with God in all eternity. He didn't start existing when he was born or when he was conceived. He had existence in himself, in his relationship with the Father from all eternity, and he came into the world to give us salvation and knowledge of God, and that one then has a legitimate right to be called God. He is God. It's entirely appropriate for Jesus to say that he's God. This this doesn't belittle anybody else. It doesn't belittle you for him to be God. It doesn't demean you. It doesn't diminish you for Jesus Christ to be God. In fact, it's good news for everyone else. There's no need to be upset or jealous about his divinity. No need for murderous jealousy because this God comes into the world for our good for a good that you can't even imagine. Just look at the things that he does when he comes. He cares for people. He heals people. He restores them. He brings them joy. So it's only reasonable to see that that what Jesus does is good, and it's good in a way that reflects and reveals his unique relationship to the Father, and in a way that only God himself can truly do. Only God can do this stuff that Jesus is doing. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. If I'm not doing good, miraculous 
good for you things that are from my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, which is pretty obvious to this point that he does, if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. So when you look at the life of Jesus Christ, as recorded in the Gospels, you have all the proof that you need that he has a unique relationship with God, that he is in the Father, and the Father is in him. That is to say that he's God and reveals this very unique God to us, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is one with the Father. He's one in substance, yet he's distinct from the Father as a person, and they mutually indwell one another. So sorry I've got to lay some heavy theological language on you, but this is where it comes up in the Bible. They have perichoretic union. That is, one is in the other and vice versa, right? And it's a dance. That's what that language is meant to evoke in us. It's a, it's a dance where one centers on the other and one is in the other. And there's this mutual indwelling and mutual delighting and mutual harmonious communion. That's who our God is. That's who Jesus reveals him to be. And don't miss this, very important in this passage, he wants you to know and understand that. He wants you to know and understand that he's in the Father and the Father is in him. He says it in, uh, in verse 38. <clears throat> so, he wants you to come to an awareness of. That's what it means to know and understand. Come to a first-time awareness and understand is more like that over time, to dwell in and abide in and continue to meditate on the knowledge that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in him. So it must be pretty important if he wants us to know and believe it. Why? Not just so that we can say, oh, that's great for you, Jesus. I'm so glad you have that unique relationship with God, right? You get to have that special, special relationship. I'm so happy for you. You're, you're so unique and great, <laughs> right? It's not just so that we would praise him. It is for that. But why is it of the utmost importance that you believe that Jesus is God, that he reveals the Trinity to you, that he's one with the Father in perichoretic union? Because that's your life. That's your eternal life right there. That's what he came to give you, that no one can stop him from giving you. That's your life. The Son has always had this relationship with the Father, but then he came into the world as a human being. He took on our humanity. He took it to himself in his own person. That's who he is now. He's united the, the divine and the human. He came as a human being to bring our humanity into the same relationship that he has always enjoyed with the Father. Blessed union, eternal love, joy, and peace in knowing the Father, God being in us. And, and us in him. That's why Jesus came into the world. And that's why we need to know it. Irenaeus, uh, one of the ancient church fathers, says, Jesus became what we are in order to enable us to become what he is. God became a man so that humans could become gods. Humans like us being made gods, participating in the divine nature, that spiritual relationship that the Son enjoys with the Father. Not ceasing to be humans, but pretty highly exalted in that relationship. Someone asked me this week, 
a very important question that I think probably we all wrestle with, whether you're a Christian or not, <clears throat> how we can know we have a good relationship with God. How can we know it? I mean, when we assess ourselves, we assess our own progress in the Christian life, we assess our spiritual activities, our devotional energies, our thoughts and words and deeds, we're assessing all our relationships and all our interactions. When we look at ourselves and we're trying to figure out, am I in a real relationship with God? Is this a good relationship with God? Is this what a good relationship with God looks like? Uh, I think when we do that, it's really easy to doubt whether we're seeing anything like a good relationship with God. It's really easy to look at yourself and, and doubt that there's any solid, strong evidence of a good, secure, vibrant, this is what a healthy relationship with God looks like. I look at myself, I'm not going to see that. I look at my own relationship with God and can get easily discouraged. I don't pray right. I don't pray enough. I don't love others. I don't pray for them. I don't serve them. Not like I should. My faith is weak. My personal knowledge of God is flawed. I don't even want to ask the question anymore of myself. When I look at myself and ask, does this look like a good, healthy relationship with God? I just push that to the back of my mind. I can't answer that question. I'm afraid of the answer to that question when I look at myself. And that's probably true of you if you're a Christian. That's probably true of you if you're not a Christian. How can I know then that I have a, a true, healthy, good, vibrant relationship with God? How can I know that I have eternal life, that I have the assurance of salvation? How can I know that I have a good relationship with God? Well, it's when I look at Jesus and see his, his relationship with God as the perfect human being united to God in the kind of oneness that, where he says, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. His relationship to God is my relationship to God. That's what he gives us. That's what salvation is. The Father's in him, and he's in the Father, and he's my mediator. He's the one who stands in for me in this relationship. He's my priest. He's my vicar. I live vicariously through him. My life is hidden with him in God. <clears throat> because Jesus Christ is in perfect, everlasting relationship with God as your representative, not just in himself and for himself, but as your representative, you can believe, you can trust, you can even know and understand that you have a good, solid, enduring relationship with God, no matter what it looks like when you look at your own life. He says, you know, the, the, the common phrase, mi casa es su casa, right? My house is your house. Jesus came into the world to say, mi padre es su padre. Mi vida, my life, is your life. And that's eternal life. Jesus gives it to you, and no one can stop him from doing it. No one can take it away from you. In fact, when the parable comes true, the parable of the wicked tenants, and they kill the son in an attempt to steal the inheritance from the owner of the vineyard, when we in our jealousy nailed Jesus up on the cross to die, that's what he had planned all along as the way to our blessing, the way to give himself to us completely and for us. He shared his inheritance with us. He gave himself for us. No one took his life from him. He's made that abundantly clear in John's gospel at this point. 
No one took his life from him. He gave it willingly. No one could thwart his purpose. And his purpose is your salvation. And no one could stop that. Even when he's surrounded by enemies, completely surrounded, ready to arrest him and stone him, probably pressing in on him, even then, he escaped from their hands, it says. Houdini, the escape artist? No. (laughs) I mean, maybe, but (laughs) he's the Lord. He's the Lord. He could do whatever he wants, and this is what he wanted, to give you his relationship with the Father. That's good news. He wouldn't go to the cross and die if he were not willing to do so. And he was, and he did. Even our murderous, usurping insurrection couldn't stop him from blessing us and giving us what belonged to him, what was rightly his, his inheritance. We botched our chance to have a good relationship with God in and of ourselves, to be able to look at myself and say, yep, good relationship with God here, right? We botched that. But his sovereign grace is so great that he would not allow us utterly to destroy ourselves and ruin our salvation. He is the Lord, and he would have the victory in our salvation in his time and in his way, and he'd restore us to God and exalt us in himself. So, <clears throat> close with a quote from T.F. Torrance. It's, a, it's on the front page of the bulletin there. It is in Christ's grasp of us rather than in our grasp of him that our salvation and certainty lie. So take heart. You are in good hands, the good hands of the Father and the Son by his grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is too much for us to take in. Uh, We need to sit with Jesus' words for longer than the time allotted for us here. Uh, We need to sit with Jesus' words and sit with you and Jesus himself um, all our lives and contemplate who he is on our behalf. So we pray that you would keep us mindful of Christ throughout our days, that you would encourage us with the words of Christ and the reality of Christ, encourage us knowing that, um, that our relationship with you is secure in him, that he lives it for us on our behalf and freely gives it to us as a gift of your grace. We pray that you would uh, give us the assurance of our salvation, when, when, especially when we need it, when we come up against those times where we're uh, discouraged about the, uh, the apparent state of our souls. Uh, when we're looking at ourselves, we pray that you would fix our eyes on Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.